Reconstructionist Radio presents The War Room, where we discuss tactics for strategic Christian living. Mighty Lord, extend your kingdom, be the truth with This is The War Room. My name is Jason Sanchez, and my guest today is Andrea Schwartz. Andrea has been active as a home educator since 1983. She successfully educated her three children through high school. She has written seven books, and her eighth is about to be published, focusing on the family as God's primary institution for dominion. Her website, kingdomdrivenfamily.com, is a useful site for Christian families, and she is a regular contributor to the Chalcedon publication, Faith for All of Life. Andrea runs the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute, a mentoring study program designed to help Christian women become the best wives, mothers, and teachers for their children. She is a sought-after public speaking and writing instructor, as well as a guest speaker for Christian schools, homeschooling support groups, and introductory seminars on homeschooling. She resides in San Jose, California, with her husband of 40 years. Sister, welcome to the War Room. Thank you for having me. So, as... The first uh, woman guest to the war room. I, I I really appreciate you coming on, and it's a, it's my honor to be able to sit here and and spend some time with you to discuss some very important topics for the women out there that listen to our podcast. So I, I just want to thank you for coming on, and uh, I want to start off with your story. So tell us a little bit of how you became a Christian, and then how you became a Christian Reconstructionist. Whether it all became at once, or if there was different, uh, if it was at different times. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. I think it's always great for anybody listening to anyone to find out their context, because we all have a context, and um, it sometimes helps to understand the motivation behind the things that we do as we seek to serve the Lord. So I was raised in a Catholic family, and I went to Catholic schools all the way up through high school. By the time I got to college, I had long since abandoned any affiliation or desire for Christianity, because once I had rejected Catholicism, I had learned about those awful people called the Protestants, and so, you know, why bother, you know, investigating that? So that left me at the mercy of influences that were around me, and quite frankly, they weren't very good. Eventually, I got involved in Scientology, which is a cult, mm -hmm. and it was after living through the ramifications of that and other bad decisions along the way that God humbled me and bestowed his grace and brought me to faith. However, while being with some very fine people, both my husband and I were longing for a systematic approach to the faith. I had met him in Scientology, and Scientology is somewhat systematic, but when I got to evangelical Christianity, it, I was looking for the answer of, we're supposed to be righteous, how are we righteous? How do you know if you're righteous? How do you know if you're doing the right thing? Well... Being a talker, anytime I'm with a person, I will speak what's on my mind, the things that I'm curious about, and thanks to a, we were introduced to the writings of R.J. Rushduni and the Chalcedon Foundation, and guess what we discovered? The Christian faith is indeed systematic, and mm -hmm. it's a faith for all of life. And then once I understood, thanks to Dr. Rushduni, that the words 
righteousness and justice are synonyms and that God's law is the only standard by which we can know God's righteousness and justice, it's like everything opened up. And the rest, they say, is history. <laughs> I endeavored to go find this man once I found out he was alive, and I uh, met him and asked him, would he baptize my recently born daughter? And then he invited us up to where he resided and where Calcedon is in Vallecito, California. Mm-hmm. And he never got rid of us. <laughs> we just kept coming back. And I had the benefit of knowing him and his wife for 15 years before he passed away. Wow. So did you start working for the Calcedon Foundation at that time as a writer or uh, was it just uh, voluntary? How, how did that go? Well, when we first got there, my husband and I looked back and were sort of amazed that they ever spent time with us. We were so raw. We were so confused. You see, we were convinced that the worst thing that anybody could ever do was be in the Church of Scientology and be in a cult, having no idea of the greater context of humanism and statism and all the other things that were against God. Mm-hmm. And so we basically started listening to lectures he had recorded in the past, and when we'd go up and visit, um, we would spend Sunday afternoons there just asking him a ton of questions, and he was so incredible. And he and his wife, Dorothy, were both amazing to us. And when we look back now, we kind of relate to them as parents because they were so um, they were so long-suffering with what we wanted to know and what we didn't yet know. Mm-hmm. And so pretty soon, I just wanted to see what I could do that would be of benefit to Calcedon. And so the first thing we did was we decided that every church in San Jose needed a library of Rush Dooney's material. Mm. <laughs> and so we started buying whole libraries and donating them to churches only to discover that a lot of them were not interested, that <laughs> we thought he was so good and they were not really interested. And then I started doing some volunteer work where I would type up after some of Dr. Rush Dooney's manuscripts. And then before long, um, I started the volunteer work might say in 1987. By 1992, he said, would you come work for us? And so that's when I began doing a lot of the typesetting. And then as I learned and realized that, um, you know, I was gaining in the wisdom I sought for, uh, Sam Blumenfeld, who was a good friend of Dr. Rush Dooney's and a regular contributor to Calcedon, he and I were out to breakfast one day and he said, you should write. And I, I just thought, I should write? Who would ever want to read what I had to say? And he said, no, you should write. And then eventually, um, I would start putting uh, essays, and I would submit them, and they'd say, yeah, we're going to run this. And so the books that I have um, are compilations of some of those essays and and some other things that I've written along the way. So um, I'm as surprised as anybody that (laughs) people want to listen to what I have to say. But um, I, I think that I'm a good... Um, introduction point for women especially and homeschooling families in terms of yeah the Institutes of Biblical Law is a really big fat book but if you take it piece by piece you'll realize that it's something that will aid you in seeking the kingdom and serving the kingdom. Amen. And you know so many of us Christians we um, were pulled out of Egypt and then we end up wandering in the desert for you know a lot of years with evangelicalism and we don't realize that the scriptures are truly ethical, judicial in nature. I mean, even the gospel is ethical, judicial in nature. 
And the uh-huh. fact of the matter is that uh, we waste a lot of time because we end up staying in these churches that are that were being spoon-fed milk for 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 years and years, sometimes decades. And then when when we do become come to the realization that, wow, it is the scriptures are for all of life. It truly is like another awakening, and and it's uh, it's so refreshing. But God spared you and your husband of that, and pretty much took you from Scientology straight into the hands of uh, Dr. Rushduni and 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 the Calcedon Foundation. So that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, were you the first? One of the first women to write for the uh, for the foundation. Um, I think if you look back in their archives, there were one or two. But I, I probably am the first woman who um, became a regular contributor. And um, I oftentimes hear people who say, when I'm at conferences and I'm behind the Calcedon book table, you know, when we get our magazine, yours is the first we read. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's kind of cool. But I really think you should read Rush Dooney's first. <laughs> That's awesome. Can you tell us about your new upcoming book, Focusing on the Family as God's Primary Institution for Dominion? All right. Well, when I, first of all, as you said, I homeschooled all of my children. And I tell people that when I ran out of children to homeschool, I really was saying, okay, what's next for me? I loved teaching and I still love teaching. And there's nothing that brings me greater joy than as you're equipping students in the basics of, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic to infuse a biblical worldview into it. So I figured I had gained, you know, 28 plus years of experience because the difference in age between my oldest and my youngest is 14 years. So I was homeschooling for the better part of almost 29 years. And so when I um, said, okay, that, that, that chapter's done, I decided that I could be effective in mentoring other homeschool mothers and be able to share with them some of my successes and many of my failures in terms of setting priorities. You know, you think when you're in the trenches that the most important thing is that you get through the textbook or that you can pass the standardized test, when in actual fact, in retrospect, the most important thing you can do is instill a biblical worldview in your children, and then when they get older, they're going to either act on it or not. Mm -hmm. And so along the way, I had to accept that since I didn't convert myself, since I didn't create my own regeneration, I couldn't create it in my children. And so I'd have to say that over the years, I got to be a better teacher. I got to be a better mother because when you know and apply the word of God, however imperfectly, because you're not going to do it perfectly all the time, it's not going to be without flaw that you're able to isolate and see issues better so that you can focus on the things that are important. So you mentioned I had seven books. The first two books were about my experiences homeschooling. The next two, actually the next three books are about the Christian family and how the Christian family seeks to serve the kingdom of God. In between that, I wrote two children's storybooks. They're read-aloud stories for parents and children to read together that were meant to deal with important doctrinal positions in the faith, but in a way that children and their parents could then discuss it afterwards. So there's those. And then the one that's coming out soon, probably by the end of the summer, is called Empowered, Developing Strong Women for the Kingdom of God. And in, a, in that, I'm focusing a lot on some of the myths and, um, I believe, errant perspectives that what a woman, what a biblical woman should be. 
You know, we either have the extremes of the feminist on the one hand or the super submissive subservient who doesn't have an opinion or a point of view and never objects to anything. I don't think that's the the pattern that God gives us, because if you think about it, um, the first not good of the Bible was it's not good for man to be alone. Mm -hmm. Amen. And guess what happened after that? God created the woman, mm -hmm. not to be his pet, not to be his robot, but to be his part, his helpmate, so that together they could fulfill the dominion purpose. Amen. Well, let's talk about that. What does a Proverbs 31 woman look like in the 21st century? So what, what is the biblical calling for a wife and a mother in our context today? All right. So let's go back to Genesis. God created Eve specifically in response to that not good, to help her husband and to um, assist him in the work God had called him to do. Now, we all know that Eve ate the fruit when she wasn't supposed to. But interestingly enough, it's not called the, si the sin of Eve in Scripture. It's called the sin of Adam. That's right. All right? And so to, dis to dismiss Eve and say, look, she led him astray, therefore... Wives shouldn't have input to their husbands. Not true. And the scripture's full of circumstances where some very strong and godly women basically said to their husbands, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? I don't think we should do that. Right? Now, a lot of times they're also saying, I think what you're doing is fine. So it's, I don't want to give the idea that an ideal marriage has people at odds with each other. Um, we, we're so used to a conflict of interest, you know, the bourgeoisie against the proletariat, you know, mm -hmm. generation gaps, parents against children, men against women. That's not God's way. God's way is the harmony of interests, and part of how that harmony develops and goes forth is when you have a man who trusts the closest person in the world to him, his wife, to give him alternate perspectives, to talk about things together. She has her realm, he has his realm, and then together the kingdom of God is served. Amen. And it's, that's why it's so important that both the husband and the wife are rooted in Scripture because the authority, that we, the, the authority comes from God. And so that authority is a joint authority, and we're supposed to keep each other in check according to God's will. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the way it should be. Right, uh, but let me add this. Yeah. Let me add this. Um, I think there is an erroneous view that says... Men are supposed to teach women. That's not what the scripture says. Right. The scripture says the older women are supposed to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and children. And that the older men are supposed to teach the younger men how to be good husbands and fathers. All right. And so I think one of the things that happened along the way, and I noticed this as I started working with women. Initially, the women who came to me were women whose husbands had already read and digested the Institutes of Biblical Law. And they looked at that book on the shelf and they were scared to death of it. It was so big. How would I have time? I don't understand it. And so my goal was maybe if I had the opportunity to sort of walk them through it. You know, I had the benefit with the Rushdunis of when I read something and I didn't understand it or I didn't like it, and there was a lot in the Bible I didn't like at first, I'd say, but what about this? How could this be so? And, and they patiently talked to me, and, and they, they encouraged me to think, think through the implications. So I said to these women, you will be a better helper to your husband who already understands biblical law, stand it too. 
Mm-hmm. And so we then had studies that emerged. And uh, when women get together and really study the scripture, um, we're almost uniformly glad men aren't there because we get into areas <laughs> that would probably make a lot of men blush and, and probably the woman wouldn't talk about things. And so I affectionately refer to my studies as the Dos Equis Bible study because <laughs> you need two X chromosomes to be here. Uh. And women are getting through the institutes and they're thinking biblically. And there's nothing that makes me happier than when I see a woman who's turned the corner. Amen. Then she, she's not like, well, what do you think? And I don't really know much. And then they say, no, that's what the law of God says. And I'm mm-hmm. like, hallelujah. You know what? They don't even need me anymore. Okay. I'll keep talking and I'm glad to have the study, but they, they got it. Amen. At that point, you guys start sharpening each other. Exactly. So, yeah. Uh, tell me about Mrs. Rush Dooney. How was she uh, with you and, and your husband when you guys met them? And along the way, um, what was that relationship like? Okay. Well, she was a feisty person. So you have to understand, when we met them, um, they were in their 70s, all right? So she's 53 years old. She was 53 years older than I. So when I was born, she was already what most people would have considered a senior citizen. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have an easy time in life herself. She had her struggles, but she was so practical and so matter-of-fact. And a story I like to share with people is after I had two children – and my mother-in-law, who had been living with us and I'd been taking care of, passed away. I had I had always wanted another child, and you know, and it's like I we were trying, and I wasn't getting pregnant. And so one day when we were up there, I thought I would get some older woman's sympathy, and I said, you know, we're trying to have a baby, and I'm not getting pregnant. She looks me squarely in the eye and says, "What makes you think you create eternal life?" Wow. I was like, whoa, okay, so much for the pity party here. This isn't going to happen. And then when I did get pregnant a number of months later, I remember praying, you know, I know God, it's already decided, but I so want to name a child Dorothy. And so as God would have it, my third child was a daughter, and I remember calling her up, um, Dorothy, and I said, I have at like 11.15. I think I can't call her up then, but I was on the phone with her at 6.30 the next morning, and I said, um, by the way, there's somebody who you're going to get to meet soon, and her name is Dorothy, and, and she was so honored because um, no one had ever named someone after her. Wow, that's beautiful. That's, that's awesome. So then what, what would you say to a woman? Because you know, uh, some women, they, they think, well, theology is not for me. Uh, I just, you know, I'll just read my, my Bible in the morning and, and go about my business, but they're not interested in, in digging in deep and picking up a book like the Institutes or... Uh, you know, Revolt Against Maturity or any other book of, of, of depth, what would you say to a woman like that to encourage her to, you know, go ahead and pick up that book and, and start reading? What would you say? Well, what I usually do and why I wrote my books, because if you read my books, they're laced with quotes from Dr. Rush Dooney. All mm-hmm. right. So uh, I don't really want to call it Rush Dooney Light because it's not Rush Dooney Light because I use the heavy duty quotes in there and things that he, ha- you know, that I learned from him and things that as a result of learning biblical law. So it's okay to start with something a little bit easier to digest. I just recently found out that my first book was translated into Portuguese recently. Mm. And um, I got a Facebook message from a woman who said she saw it online. She downloaded it. She read it all in one night and she was so excited. Now she wants to consider further study. So if somebody finds that book imposing, I totally get it, you know, but 
I, I tell them, you know what? It actually is better than for hitting intruders or holding a door open. <laughs> All right. You could actually use it for something like you could learn it. And so if, if it takes you three years to get through it, it takes you three years. But every day you learn something new and you can apply it. And so my emphasis with women who say, I really do want to study this now I'm ready. I said, okay, read a section. And I kind of take them through how I would sort of organize it. And I said, and don't go any further till you know how to apply that aspect of scripture to your life. Because the Institutes doesn't replace the Bible. Right. All right. It doesn't. And in throughout the Institutes, Rush Dooney is constantly quoting the Bible and then basically saying, this is how you flesh this out. If you learn this law and you learn this case law, now you'll know how to adjudicate between who you're going to vote for in election, mm -hmm. how you're going to decide what job you're going to take, what's a suitable um, spouse if you're unmarried and you're looking to marry. See, since the faith speaks to every area of life and thought, we want to get people out of the idea that Christianity is a couple of hours at church during the week. No, that it's a world and life view that basically directs everything that you're going to do. So that if you're making decisions in life and they're not scripturally based, chances are you're making the wrong decision. That's why you need to know biblical law, because no, you're not saved by the law. But you are sanctified, because if we're so supposed to be a holy people, how are we going to do that unless we're applying God's standard for holiness? Right, right. Yeah, so much of today's church, they try to uh, differentiate and separate the law and grace, and, and the law is of grace. You know, um, God took the children out of, Israel, out of Egypt first. You know, that's grace. And then he gave them the law and said, this is how you're, you're to live. And I think we forget that often uh, because of, of bad teaching you know, coming out of pulpits. Well, I'd go one step further. I'd say the law, which actually God's law started from the beginning because he told Adam what he was to do and what he wasn't to do. But think about what most tyrants do. Most tyrants will come down on people for not doing what they want them to do. But rarely have they told them what they want them to do. Our God tells us what he wants mm -hmm. and then promises blessing for obedience and curses for disobedience. So the law is grace Amen. in action. That's right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute that you that you have set up and uh, those women that have dug in and, and, and read the institutes and want to uh, then disciple other women and teach them, how can they get involved in something like this in their area? Sure. Um, well, the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute is just the name I came up with when I was thinking that the most important thing a woman can do in qualifying herself to teach her children is not to go ahead and get a degree from a secular university. It's to learn because she may not be able to read every book her children will ever read because they could have more time than she does. But as they're telling her about what they're learning and, and what they've read in a book or whatever, if she's got a framework from which to say, all right, well, how does that honor God? Or doesn't that sound like someone's in violation of this commandment or whatever? So the most important thing she can do is to have an umbrella that goes over her school that says whatever subject's going to be taught, whatever discussions we're going to have, the scripture's going to be at the root of how we decide what's good and how we decide what's not. And so... Um, on my site, thekingdomdrivenfamily.com, there's a way in which people can 
basically get more information as to what studying a book like the Institutes of Biblical Law is all about. You know, a lot of times when uh, women and, and men, you know, uh, fathers and mothers decide to pull their children out of state school and, and start homeschooling, then one of the first questions that uh, my wife or I get asked is, what curriculum should we use? You know, they're so used to having a set uh, pattern, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to teach. And many times, you know, we say, well, it depends on the child and, you know, we piece ours together. Uh, is there any certain curriculum that you that you recommend or, or is that your same advice? Well, um, let me say this, that one of the most imposing things when you decide to homeschool, see, I, I decided to homeschool from the beginning. So my kids didn't go to public school. Mm-hmm. So I, I had the benefit of learning as I went, but they didn't really have comparisons, right? Mm-hmm. Um So if you have your kids in school and now you're pulling them out, there's going to be some obvious transition because the children may not be as committed to the process as you are, and they also may be used to other things. So you're right that you have to identify what's going to be the best way for this child to learn. But the most important thing is to give the child the ability to read and to learn through listening. So if a mother doesn't know much about history or if a mother doesn't know much about any other subject there's nothing that precludes her from reading aloud to her children the very things or from the books that she acquires and um, I would highly recommend that uh, when somebody is going to begin homeschooling that they find somebody who's already gone through it and can give them some ideas that's one of the things that I make myself available for people to give them an idea where to start Um, If you know nothing about biblical law, but you have the desire to obey God, well, that's the first thing you need to do. Mm -hmm. And so as you're teaching your child phonics and how to learn and you get materials that way and you're, you know, bringing yourself up to speed, teaching a child to read and teaching a child how to listen to what's being um, presented to them is some of the best ways to learn. You don't have to do workbooks to be a good student. You don't have to sit and and digest pre-digested material out of textbooks. There are um, various good resources out there, but it isn't really always a one-size-fits-all. So that's why it's good to have somebody to talk to and to get a sense of where you should start. Right. You know, I watched a video, I think it was uh, on YouTube, but you were talking about some this program that you do to help those who are illiterate or, or not good at reading, you bring in the child and you uh, teach them how to read and you, you take $5 from them every, uh-huh. every week. Can you, can you talk about that? Sure. Um, it dawned on me that the public schools are doing a great job of um, giving us people to minister to. Um, the statistics are not good when it comes to what happens when people have finished a state education And uh, by the time they get to college, for example, many of them can't do simple computation or writing. And so there's all this remedial work that gets done at the junior college level. So um, I decided that because Calcedon publishes a reading curriculum called uh, Alpha Phonics, and there are readers that go along with it, and then there's another book that we um, offer to people called uh, How to Tutor, that you could actually start people on what are the basics of imparting an education and in the process maybe fill in those blanks yourself but as I said I like to teach so uh, I kept trying to find somebody who needed help and 
that the parents were willing to have that child be helped. And so through a teacher that I know, uh, who's a Christian at a school, he referred this family to me. And I told them, look, I'm more than happy to help your son, but here's the thing. He has to do what I say. <laughs> he has to show up. And, you know, you has to be some investment. So, you know, I live in the Silicon Valley, so tutoring per hour could command as much as 40 or $50 an hour. Mm -hmm. I said, every time we meet, you have to give me $5. He has to hand it to me. Mm -hmm. Even if it's your money, he has to hand it to me. So we've been meeting together since um, right before Thanksgiving. His reading has improved so much that his teachers told his mother to thank me because he was doing better in school. But the payoff for me isn't that, well, now he's getting better grades at school. Now his reading is to a level where I go ahead and he's reading Bible story books. And now we're into why I wanted him to read in the first place. His reading still isn't up to actually being able to read the Bible, mm -hmm. but now we're reading Bible story books and we're talking about things like creation and the Tower of Babel and Noah's Ark. And he's asking me questions about it. So it's, it's taken me months to get him to this point. And that $5 that he gave me every time we met, I turn around and I bought him his own copy of Alpha Phonics, and then I bought the Bible story book. So he's really paying for his own stuff. Right. And the reason that I have it be minimal is that, number one, I don't think they would have done it if I said, every time we meet, you have to give me $20. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want it to be nothing and have him not value it. So if I'm sitting with him and he starts, you know, yawning or whatever, I say, it's okay. I mean, you're, you're still going to pay me anyway. And that's, oh, okay, okay, okay. So, and, and I don't let him get away with things. And the part that's best about it is they pegged him as special needs, they, special ed, and he's, he's smart. Yeah. He just was living up to their expectations. So we had this joke and he would just make outrageous guesses when he, and I'd say, I don't know what you're going to do in life, but don't make guessing your profession because you will go hungry because you are a terrible guesser. But if you actually sound out the words, you'll see that you'll do rather well. So we have a really good relationship right now. Mm -hmm. And what I'm working on, I think this is a program that churches should do. But I would rather be able to go to a church and do this rather than have to go to the public library. Mm -hmm. But can you imagine if churches set up a banner outside and said – we will help you with your reading, or we will help if English is not your first language, that we'll help you learn how to speak English. Mm -hmm. People are coming to the church, they usually, and maybe it's one or two dollars, I don't know, whatever they have to pay for whatever, right. and why would they say, why did you do this? And you say, I do this because of Jesus Christ, and he told me to serve other people, Amen. right? And Amen. so instead of um, saying public schools are so terrible, Let's snatch him out of there, and maybe in the process, maybe schools could be formed that some of these kids will say, I don't want to go back to that school. I want to really learn yeah. someplace where I'm really going to learn. That's a great idea. You know, uh, our church, we're getting ready to uh, form a co-op here in the fall, and I think that would be a great thing to implement. You know, put that banner up there and start drawing some kids out of the community that uh, are having trouble reading. That's a great idea. What do you think about uh, co-ops? Well, I did co-ops for a while, and I, th I think that... Um, the requirement has to be that if you're going to be part of a co-op, it should be right for your family. If it ever gets to the point where it's not right for your family anymore, don't feel like, well, I have to keep doing it because, I, you know, I have commitments. 
you always should go into a co-op with, if it's working for my children and my educational goals for them, great. If it ceases to do that, time to stop doing it. Yeah. And I had to do that a number of times. It's like, this was great. Everybody liked my, my teaching. They thought I was wonderful. And I said, okay, now what are you going to provide for my children? And nobody wanted to do anything. And mm. it was just, oh, you're just so good. I said, you know what? We're done with this. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not a one-teacher house. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Was it a one-day co-op or was it a, a multi-day? Because we're planning uh, the most, on one day. Yeah the, yeah, the most I ever did was one day. One day, yeah. Okay. And let me say something else about that tutoring program. Yeah. All right. By the time a student, especially a homeschool student, is 13 or 14 years old, these students can tutor other people on how to read. Mm, that's right. And it prepares them for the day that they're going to teach their own children how to read. Mm-hmm. But I think um, I actually have this model. I've never been able to implement it. But if you had a homeschool resource center and you had women saying, I, I really need to know how to teach, right? Well, they could come in and watch co-op teachers teach. Mm-hmm. What would happen with their children when they were there? Because chances are they're not ready for that yet. Well, then you have older students who are getting an apprenticeship on how to teach, and they can help, you know, get the kids started in reading while mom's learning how to do it. And it, it just becomes a place where in the community people know this is where I can go to get help for what I feel like God's calling me to do. Right. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, uh, something that we've lost is that multi-generational faithfulness and, and, and the teaching being passed on, the oracles of God being passed on from generation to generation, and not only from generation to generation, but from, like you said, the older uh, to the younger, the older mm-hmm. siblings to the younger. Uh, you know, your website's called Kingdom Driven Family. Dot Dot com. KingdomDrivenFamily.com. Why do you say the family is, is, is God's primary institution for dominion and then kingdom service? Well, because the Bible says that. Amen. Uh, from, from the beginning, you see genealogies, not of ecclesiastical people or kings or leaders. You see families. This person begot that person begot that person. So the dominion mandate was given to families, mm-hmm. right? And the church and the state are the resources that God puts in institutions to help the family when things that the family can't handle need to be handled. But in scripture, health, education, and welfare is the dominion of the family. But because there was this vacuum and because the church failed to teach the full counsel of God, the state was more than willing to come in and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of education. Yeah, we'll take care of the old folks. We'll take care of health care. And we know what a flaming success that was, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then what are some practical steps that we can, as individual families, what can we do to implement and influence those people that God has placed in our circles of influence? Well, I think it, we're going to model how we live. Right. So we don't want to have this this view that, oh, we're Christians and we're homeschooling families and we have no problems. Christian homeschooling families have the same problems, if not greater, who don't care. You know, Um, I know many professing Christians who see no problem with their children going to public school and getting seeped in secularism and human problem there. What happens to kids in a homeschool setting is. They see that not everybody else does it the way mom and dad does it. Therefore, maybe mom and dad are weird. And so Mm -hmm. I always encourage parents to repeatedly tell their children why they're doing what they're doing. So that if a child is asked, why do your parents homeschool? It's not like, I don't know. 
You know, right. they don't like they, they think those people are bad. They need to understand the world they're going to move into and what it's going to be like to have to rub elbows with people who have been schooled for 12, you know, 16, depending on how high a level of education, who have a value system that says what's well, important and uh, we should never think things to ourselves. If the civil government says something, we just must obey because that's the way it is. Right. What do you recommend for uh, for those who want to go on to higher learning? You know, so much of our of our university system is just you know part two of of the state run system. So, uh, mm -hmm. what 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 would you say to somebody that wants to go on and, and learn more? I would say, what is God calling you to do, and do you need to go there in order to uh, serve God the way you feel He's calling you to do? Um, I have no degree from any place. I did, uh, I got a good education. I went through 13 years of Catholic school. I told you I came, and as a result, I really did get a good education. I remembered how to diagram my sentences. I remembered my trigonometry and my algebra. So I was able to do that with my children. All right. But when I was in co-op settings, I can't tell you how many women with master's degrees in education came and told me I was one of the best teachers they had ever encouraged, ever encountered. And where did I get my degree? And I'd say, I don't have a degree. And they were dumbfounded, mm -hmm. right? I also said, I never stopped being a student, though. Thanks to the desire to learn biblical law, I'm still not done learning biblical law. Right. One of the best parts about teaching it over and over again in classes is each time I get a better appreciation for it. So it's not so much the letters after your name as the desire to learn what God says to do and then Look at your own interest, talents, and desires and say, how can I best do this? So when I was done homeschooling, it was a real no-brainer to say, well, I've done this. I could help people who were doing it. I didn't decide I had to go out and tackle something that I'd never done before. Right. Right. And so I would say to a young person especially, okay, what do you think God's calling you to do? And he says, okay, I, God's calling me to medicine. All right. Are you aware of the current state of Okay. Are you aware of the challenges that you will face? Are you aware of the fact that you may be asked that go contrary to the scripture? Do you even know what the scripture says on these various things? Hmm. And long be yeah, there are some things that you do have to get a license or a you know a degree or something in order to do it. And Dr. Rush Dooney used to call that the union card. You had to go mm -hmm. get, it. but he would say don't plan on going to college to learn anything. Right. Because if they're not going to filter everything through the lens of Scripture, then you're going to get a different view than a God-ordained view. Yeah, that's a lot of dirty filters right there. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, uh, we look around us and we see God's judgment upon our land and, and upon this world. Uh, but we are post-millennialists. And yet yeah. we know that we have ebbs and flows and that uh, we need to look at the big picture. Uh why should we be optimistic in the face of so many apparent problems and setbacks? So this goes back to presuppositions. Mm -hmm. The Bible declares over and over that our side wins because Christ has obtained the victory. If we focus only on our circumstances and allow ourselves to go through the pity parties of life, we end up dishonoring his death, resurrection, and ascension. It's not about us. It's never been about us. It's a privilege to 
have been enlightened by the the Holy Spirit to know that we're part of God's family and that our future is secure. So in the face of the latest edict from Washington, D.C., or the current scare of the next disease that's going to kill us, or the need to keep going to war because somebody needs to continue to get rich in order to, you know, supply arms to each side. You know what we say? God is on the throne, and I'm going to go for the low-hanging fruit. The low-hanging fruit is what's in front of me, my children, mm. my neighbors, my uh, the place where I work, uh, whatever the circumstances is, that I'm going to do what I can do right now that qualifies as kingdom service enough people did that, they would not be pessimistic because they would see that people are hungry for this. Amen. People are hungry for the truth. They tend to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Oh, yeah, we know that's true. But as the world continues to manifest the results of disobedience, there are those who want to know, just like I was years ago, what do I do? How do I be righteous? And if we're ready because we know God's and we can apply it and we can teach it, then we've helped I increase that person to serve the kingdom better. And as I tell all the women who go through my study, you want to know what I get out of this? Someday you're going to do this for other people. Mm. That's what I get out of it because somebody did it for me. They could have found me difficult to be around or a nuisance, but they just, they, they never said so and I kept coming back. So is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners as far as uh, anything that's on your heart, on your mind that you want to uh, tell them, any advice or anything else? Yeah. I, I, when you read your Bible, no matter where you are in your Bible, as you're going along and you encounter something, don't just gloss over it. Ask yourself, do I believe it? How does this apply? And have I made allowances that said, yeah, but this isn't practical for today's world? I mean, maybe that was easy for them back then, but it's not easy now. Christian Reconstruction, I once asked Dr. Rushduni, define for me Christian Reconstruction. And he said, Christian Reconstruction is reading and uh, understanding that every word of Scripture is meant for you to put into action. Hmm. That's Christian Reconstruction. Amen. Amen. Can you tell us where we can find you? Uh, I know you have a few websites that you that you uh, run okay um yeah i have a couple of them the, the main one is the kingdom driven family and uh that has a lot of my uh, blog entries and essays that i've written there are some podcasts that you can listen to there are some videos that are up there as well and then previous websites that i had before i consolidated it but there still are things on there that can be helpful it's um uh titus mentoring.com which is basically for women who want mentors, not necessarily they, uh, they need to go through a study of biblical law, but either that they need someone who can mentor them or that they want to learn how to be a mentor themselves. And then there's a, another one called wordsfromandrea.com, which had a number of my articles that I had there as well. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the interesting part about how the Chalcedon Foundation has worked with me since I started working there is that they allow me to do this. So I am an employee of Chalcedon, but they value the teaching work that I do with wives and mothers and single women and such so that um, 
I would encourage anybody who finds value in what I do to make their way over to the Calcedon site at uh, www.calcedon.edu and um, look through all the resources that are there and consider helping um, a ministry that has placed a high premium on Christian education of all people of all ages and have resources to equip people to do it. You can purchase my books there and um, you know find out any other things that are going on that uh, might pertain to you. And people can always write to me. Um, I do read and answer my email. They can reach me at andrea at calcedon.edu. Amen. Thank you, sister, so much for your time and for your wisdom. It's, it's truly been a pleasure for me to be able to spend some time with you and to be able to share you with the listeners. Well, great. And I, I, I'm honored to be the first woman on your show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, sister. Have a good evening. All right. Thank you for joining us in the war room. Please enjoy The Nation's Rage, Psalm 2, by my soul among lions. Why do the nations rage? Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete weekly lineup of eight distinct podcasts. Starting on Sunday, Setting the Record Straight with Pastors Gordon Runyon, Jason Garwood, and Joseph Randall Spurgeon. Mondays, The Post Mill Report with Nathan F. Conkey. Tuesdays, Acts to the Root with Bojidar Marinov. Wednesdays, The Hellraiser Report with Scott Allen Buss. Thursdays, the War Room with Bill Evans and Jason Sanchez. Fridays, Once Dead, where Christians give testimonies of God's grace upon their lives. And Saturdays, Restoring America One County at a Time lectures with Joel McDermott. And our new podcast, No Neutrality, with various contributors. Please don't forget to subscribe to each individual podcast or the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where you will get all of the content we produce, including our free audiobooks. Don't forget to go to reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator and to partner with us financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.